From the small towns to the big cities. We bring you the stories that matter. This is. This is. This is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. Today we bring you the stories of Ron Brown, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and the story of Eileen Hall. Ron brings us a beautiful forgiveness and redemption story about his absent father, who he presumed was dead. And then comes the story of the infamous lake freighter that sunk with a 29-man crew on board in 1975. And last, the story of Eileen Hall, the woman who joined the Army to find her husband in the middle of World War II. Let's begin with Ron Brown. Here's our very own Joey Cortez with the story. Ron Brown grew up on the west side of Chicago. I grew up in a family where my uncles were, were drug dealers and pimps, and I saw that growing up as a kid, and it never appealed to me. I can remember as a kid seeing my uncles get shot and different things like that, and you know, one, one guy tried to murder my uncle, and, 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 and just... And just seeing it and just being a kid, like five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, growing up being like, this ain't the way this is supposed to be. I, I, I watch certain stories and, and kids say growing up in the inner city, how they saw drug dealers and that's the only people they saw. And and for them, they saw that as a, as a means to an end to get out the ghetto or to, as a kid, I don't know what God blessed me with, <laughs> but he blessed me with the ability to see that I was wrong. And that wasn't the way for me to go about my life. He was also blessed with a strong mother who divorced his biological father when Ron was a kid. I can remember he was part of an accident fraud scheme. And I remember being a kid telling him, I was like, hey, man, this, 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 you're going to get in trouble. He'd say, son, you know what? I'm making my living the best way I know how. And eventually he ended up going to prison for a few years for that. And I can remember being a kid and him writing me letters and saying, hey, you know, when I get out, things are going to be different. I'm going to spend more time with you. Um, I think it's important. And the thing was, he got out and nothing ever changed. He went back to what he knew and he ended up being in the streets for a few more years and he went to jail. My dad was like the real, you ever seen the movie Catch Me If You Can? He was like the real Catch Me If You Can. You understand what I'm saying? When it came to doing checks and stuff like that. And so I can remember having that example from a very young age and seeing all the cars and houses, and I was like, it just never appealed to me. My mother was fortunate enough and I was fortunate enough. She got married when I was about three or four years old to a great man by the name of Lawrence Hunt. And uh, he was my stepfather and he did everything in his power to just raise me the right way. And I'm so appreciative for the influence. Even right now as a 45 year old man, I think about the lessons and what he taught me. and just different things about manhood and responsibility and all those things. And so um, I think having a father made a a drastic difference in my life. My mother was a pretty tough lady. I mean, beyond measure, she was a pretty strong, tough lady. Uh, She's about 6'2", 6'3", and uh, she didn't play. And my stepfather was about 6'5", and he didn't play either. So um, I grew up in a home where um, my parents were really about education. That was very important to them. I remember being a kid and saying, hey, you know, I want to be a professional athlete. I want to do this. I want to do that. And my parents were always like, look, you know, that's a great goal. But let me give you an amazing dream. Whatever you can do with your mind, 
instead of your body will facilitate you to have a very, very lengthy career. I can remember my father getting tickets to take me to go see uh, the Chicago Bulls. And I sitting there watching them playing and Michael Jordan was lighting them up that night. I think he might have had about 45 points or something. And the, 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 the arena, everybody was yelling and screaming and, and, and I'm eating my popcorn and I'm looking and I got a pretzel in one hand and popcorn on the floor and drinking the drink and I'm having my best time ever. And he taps me on the shoulders when the Bulls call a timeout. And he says, son, let me ask you something. I said, what? He says, who has the greatest job in this whole arena? And I kind of looked at him because I thought it was a crazy question. And I was like, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan has the greatest job. Everybody's yelling for him. Everybody's screaming for him. And he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, you see that box up there with those guys walking around eating those hot dogs? And I said, yeah. He says, they have the best job in the building. They're the ones who pay Michael Jordan. And so even though people may not be screaming for him, they're the reason why all this is going on. So I want you to learn the big picture approach to life. And so that just really kind of got me thinking in life. They said, you know what? Mike's going to retire one day, but the Bulls are still going to be here. Mike's going to have an injury one day. But guess what? The Bulls are the Bulls are still going to be here. And he's like, that's what I'm getting. I want to I want you to learn about life. Being the guy that's still there as transitions continue to happen through life. And that lesson really, really stayed with me all through life. You know, it was a big lesson for me. My father, I'm going to tell you something. It, it wasn't a good experience with him growing up. But those bad experiences with him made me, I think today, a much better father. So he would say, hey, I'm going to pick you up. You know, so get dressed. We're going to go. We're going to hang out for the day. And so my mother would say, hey, look, don't don't make this kid promises and you not show up. And I can remember one particular time getting dressed up. I mean, I had on my pants and my shirt and my tie and sitting it out the window. And I paged him and said, hey, I paged him. He called me. I said, hey, I'm ready. He says, OK, I'll be there in a little while. And I can remember sitting in the window, dressed up and looking out the window and waiting on my father to come and waiting on him to come until the point that I fell asleep. And my stepfather picking me up and putting me to bed and taking my shoes off. And I kind of woke up as he was picking me up. I said, did he come? And he said, no, he didn't come. He says, but you know what? I'm here. And I always remember that memory, you know? And so for me, anything with my, with my children, um, I don't care if it's a basketball game. I don't care if it's a football game. If I tell them I'm coming, I'm coming. And so through the years, I never hated my father because he was my father, but I didn't understand. And so with that, I was able to find out how he grew up that, you know, his father one day said he was going out to the store to go get a, a pack of cigarettes. And he asked him and his brother, what did he want? And they said they wanted some candy. He said, OK, I'll be back. His father never came back. And he may have been like six, five or six. He never saw his father again. And so at that point, I kind of realized that my father didn't know how to be a father because he never had that example. So I grew up with those things. And, and I'll tell you something. Of course, they shape you, but I didn't let them break me. And I think some of these situations in our lives, they break us and they turn us into broken people. And so from from that moment on in my life, as, as I went up, I had, like I said, I had a great stepfather. I was just very determined that I would never do that to my kids. And so no child of mine can say, hey, I sat there on the doorstep and waited for my dad to come and he didn't come. And that's important to me. The funny story about it is that he came to my high school graduation at Holy Trinity and he made a big deal about it. And he told me he was so proud of me for graduating high school. And um, I think I saw him a little bit over that summer and I never saw him again. I didn't see him again until 20 years later, which is really kind of crazy because he had a brother and his brother had died. And so 
I think I was living in Atlanta at the time and I got word that my father had died and I thought he had actually died, but it was kind of some confusion. So for years, I thought he was dead. A few summers after that, my wife sent some information in for us to be on the family feud. And so we become contestants on the family feud with Steve Harvey and they tape it up in Atlanta and we go ahead and we have this, this show and we lose by one question. And we were like, man, we came all the way up here. We had a good time, but it would have been nice if we would have won. And so this is what I think about how everything happens for a reason. Well, fast forward years later, because after you do a Family Feud episode, they keep playing the episode over and over and over and over and over again. And so it stays in rotation for years. And so I had just started law school and I was making a trek from Atlanta to Birmingham three nights a week for school. And it was one particular night I was leaving criminal law class and I get a phone call from a number I had never seen before. And I was like, who's this calling me this late? It's about, I don't know, 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night. And I answered the phone and it's just something about your parents' voice. You never forget it. And even though I hadn't heard my father's voice for 20 plus years, the phone rings and I answer it. And he says, hello, son. And at that moment, I just broke down and cried. I had to pull over to the side of the road of Highway 20. And I was like, dad? And he was like, son, I've been looking for you. And I was like, I've been looking for you. I was like, how did you get my number? And it was a ray of emotions and, 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 and I was crying and he was crying. And he said, you know, I, I went and did some time and, and, you know, I lost track of you when I got out and I didn't know where you were. He said, I always knew you. You always said you wanted to be in business. You want to be a businessman. And I looked and looked and he says, I'm going to tell you something. I actually was sitting down with my girlfriend the other night. We were watching Family Feud. He says, I never watched Family Feud. It's her favorite show. And, and, and it came to you and you said your name. And he said, that's my son. And she said, that's not your son. He's like, no, that's my son. That's who I've been looking for. That's my son. He's like, she didn't believe me. He says, well, what he did was he listened to my mother-in-law, Don White. When you do that, the, the family feud, they ask you, what do you do and where do you live and all that? And so at that moment in time, she was a senior VP for Coca-Cola. And she said that. And so his girlfriend and him called Coca-Cola. They got in contact with her and she did some vetting. I didn't even know this was going on, but she did some vetting and to make sure he was, who he said he was. And then they called my wife and they went on three way. And my wife was like, we thought you were dead. And he's like, no, that's my brother. And so on and so on. And they gave him my number and we talked and I just cried like a baby. And we talked for about an hour. And I just told him, you know what? Despite everything in the world, I still love you. And you're my father. You're the reason why I'm here. And that was very important to me because I lost my mother back when I was 27 years old. So him and I kind of reconnected when I was probably like around 38, 38 years old. And so that was a powerful moment for me because as a man, even though I had a wife and a children, I had uh, loving cousins and I have one uncle that exists. You still feel a level of loneliness because my parents, you know, I felt that both my parents were gone and it just I would always ask myself, well, who buries me? You know, if something happens to me, you know. Um, and of course, you have a wife and like I said, children, but you think about that. And there was a kind of a, a loneliness in me because of not having closure, I guess, with him. But due to the fact that he was still alive, we went ahead and put our relationship back together that night. I actually ended up flying to go see him two days later and I spent my birthday with him. But I can give you an irony of that, though. My wife had had our our second son, Jackson. And so she said, what do you want to name him? And we got some names. I said, we're going to name him Jackson. I said, but his middle name is going to be Owen. And so my wife was very surprised. She was like, why would you name him Owen? Your father and you guys didn't have the best relationship. Why would you name him Owen? I said, you know what? Despite us not having the greatest relationship, I still love my father. 
and I wanted him to be better. And at that time in his life, maybe he couldn't be. I said, but you know what? I forgive him for everything that's happened in my life. I, I just forgive him and I can't hold on to it. And I said, you know, Jackson Owen Brown, you know, he'll make that name good. You know, this kid will never go to the penitentiary. This kid will do something great with his life and will have his grandfather's name. And so my wife thought that was very powerful. And she said, okay, his name will be Jackson Owen Brown. Well, the irony of that is that my son was born around that time, like about two weeks before my father came back in my life. So I, I don't know if people think about life and letting things go and getting right with God or getting right with who you are as an individual, but I actually believe in my heart that of me making that decision to forgive my father for everything that had happened in the past, every hurt, every hardship, every disappointment, and giving my youngest son his name, I think for some way that opened a door and that allowed us to find each other. And that's been seven years ago. And so now that I'm a grown man and he's a grown man, of course, he's in his um, latter 60s. We talk every other day and we have a great father and son relationship, something that I always wanted that I never imagined having later in life. But that's my guy. He came to my law school graduation and he was very proud. And he looked and said, you know what, to see how I did everything wrong in life. And to see that you did so much right, I'm just so proud of you. So that's a that's that's a big part of my journey. So even though he didn't start off being the most amazing dad in the world, years later he's become a great, 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 a great dad and a great grandfather. You know, something my parents would always see me, my mom always taught me was the importance of forgiveness, that nobody's perfect. And she always just said that. She's like, There's there's no such thing as a perfect person. Um that that just doesn't exist. And everyone does something wrong. And she would always talk about, you know, when Jesus would say, who could throw the first stone? And no one can throw the first stone. And even though he didn't get it right, I was open to allowing him to get it right. I was open. I think you have to be open sometimes. But my parents always taught me the importance of forgiveness. And, and it's a big thing. You have to forgive because here you are carrying that around with you. I just really think that it just really, really erodes your spirit. It erodes everything in you because you're carrying around the baggage and the hurt of something that happened years and years and years ago. And when you can't get over it and you can't move past it, it keeps you locked in that place. One of my good friends, he's a mentor of mine. He always said that anger is, is, is a wasted emotion. Anger will cost you a lot in your life. There are a lot of people sitting in the penitentiary right now because they were angry in a second and they did something that if they could take back, they would. And so I just learned the importance of just, you can't hold on to it. Sometimes you got to move on and move past it, but you can't hold on to it because it keeps you stuck. So there's a line in the Bible where Jesus said, how many times should you forgive somebody? And it's an enormous number, like 60 times, 60 times. You know, it's, it's really kind of crazy that that's what the Lord and Savior says, that, that you should. And I'll give you the greatest story of that is that Jesus knew that Judas was going to be a Judas. You know, J Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed by Judas, but Jesus still continued the journey with him. And so it was all the fact that he knew he was going to betray him, but he still loved him. And that's an important message right there. He, he still loved him. He, he knew he was going to do what he did, but he still loved him and he kept him around. If you read the Bible, you know, there was points where, you know, they kind of felt that he was stealing, but Jesus was so in love with the man and the relationship that that didn't even matter. And that's pretty tough in this day and age for someone to still love someone, even though 
That's the way it is. But you know what? I equate that to like a true father's love. You know, our kids don't always do what we want them to do. They don't always go the way we want them to go. But they're still our children and we still love them and we still desire relationships with them and we still wish them well. And I think that's how God looks at us on the throne, even though we get up in the morning and maybe we have great intentions and some people have bad intentions, but they go out here and they do things. But he's still in love with you. He's still in love with who you are. And the door is always open for you to come back. There's nothing you've done that's been too enormous that God can't forgive. And I think that's the most powerful thing about the Christian faith is that the door is always open for you. And I'm nowhere near Jesus Christ. I'm nowhere near God. But I've learned the importance of keeping the door open because people can change. People can change. And you're listening to Ron Brown and his real dad, his biological dad. Well, he was a character right out of Catch Me If You Can, just a black version, passing checks, living a bad life, making bad choices. He grew up, though, in a home that was all about education, a stepdad that really loved him right. He said, those bad experiences of my biological father made me a better father. And I never hated my father. I didn't understand him until I learned about how he grew up. His father's father, when he was five or six years old, went to the corner store and never came back. And when faith is a part of people's lives, we put it right out there. And his forgiveness, which came straight from his faith, well, it opened a door. And my goodness, what a door it opened. He was able to give his father the opportunity to be the dad he wasn't. And he said, now my dad, who didn't start off as a good father, is now a great father and a great grandfather. And my goodness, what he did with his wife just weeks before, wanting to name his son after the father that was never there with the middle name, and the wife saying, what gives? And him walking through that he'd forgiven his own dad and teaching his wife the power of forgiveness. And two weeks later, that call comes. I've been looking for you. Hello, son. And he said, I just cried. Some of us believe in coincidence. Some of us believe in fate and destiny. And some of us believe in God. And for believers, that's a God moment. A God wink if ever there is one. Ron Brown's story, and we'd love to hear yours. Send your stories to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And folks, we can bring you stories like these because of our terrific sponsors. And that includes Hillsdale College, a beautiful and fine place to send your kids to school. But if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now it's time for the story of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Our very own Monty Montgomery, himself a Hillsdale grad, brings us the story along with the shipwreck researcher and diver, Rick Mixter. Here's Monty with the story. When we think of the word lake, we often think of a calm, placid, and small body of water. But the Great Lakes are anything but that. People underestimate them. You know, it literally, they think they're ponds. They think that they're, you know, they're, they're much smaller than the ocean. And the truth is that the Great Lakes span over a thousand miles. You know, Lake Superior is immense. And unfortunately, it has these jagged shoals that, uh, unlike the ocean, it, it's confined. So these shoals bounce waves back and forth, and these confused waves on the Great Lakes 
tend to uh, really mess with ships and, and make it very difficult to navigate in a storm. And the results of these confused seas have often been deadly. There's a huge argument on how many shipwrecks are on the Great Lakes because it's really hard to judge. This, most of the time we would put it to you know, insurance settlements. Let's look at Lloyd's of London or other places that paid out, but we don't know if they were recovered. If you said on the bottom, most people would probably throw out a number between 6,000 and 10,000 shipwrecks that are still on the bottom. But out of all these shipwrecks, there's one that has been etched into the collective consciousness of the people of the Great Lakes, the Edmund Fitzgerald. And there's a reason for that. Fitzgerald is famous for two words, Gordon Lightfoot. <laughs> it, it's literally a, a wreck that I think would have been forgotten if not for a Canadian songwriter who took a, a, the story and turned it into a seven and a half minute song that went to number two on the charts. And once that happened, it became enamored not only by the people of the Great Lakes, it became their song, um, played every November. Every time you turn on the radio, somebody plays it at that time because of the gales of November and to remember the crew. Nobody argues that it, it's not Gordon Lightfoot. It is the largest shipwreck on the Great Lakes it, by a couple hundred feet. The Fitzgerald was 729 feet long and uh, lost with all hands, which was part of the mystery, I think, that captivated even Gordon Lightfoot, and uh, that's why it kind of became a story. How in 1975 could you have a 700-foot freighter with 29 men completely vanish? Fitzgerald was one of the last of the ships built in Michigan, which we used to have an amazing shipbuilding uh, prowess. We were number one on the Great Lakes for years, just a massive ship. I mean, it was the flagship for Columbia Transportation. So when it was launched, not only was she the biggest, but she was well-appointed. She had the, the best skipper, according to Columbia, uh, the best cook, because they would um, entertain many of the steel companies like National Steel's president or, you know, big wigs would come on board, bring their family along, and, uh, you know, it would have inside Jail Hudson Company, the, the famous Hudson store, had all of the appointments inside. So your beds all of the furniture which had to be custom cut to fit the canner of the uh, floor of the Fitzgerald which was you know slightly rounded they had to cut the legs of the bed to fit correctly so it, it was the flagship it was the ship that everybody wanted to to be assigned to and it was certainly the ship that gave out many rides to people it was also fast they called it the Toledo Express because it made that run so quickly and for the next 17 years, the Edmund Fitzgerald would continue to make that trip from Superior, Wisconsin to Detroit, laden with iron ore. And there was no reason to expect that on November 9th, 1975, her trip under the command of Captain Ernest McSorley would go any differently. It, it was a Sunday, and it was in Superior, Wisconsin on a beautiful day. And Jack McCarthy, the first mate, would be in charge of telling the guys, you know, uh, the loading, make sure that the ship was loaded evenly and which they would go underneath a gravity-fed dock and it would actually spill these round taconite pellets into the, the cargo hold, which they took 26,000 tons. This is where Gordon Lightfoot was, was wrong on a couple of accounts in his song. He said uh, fully loaded for Cleveland, but it wasn't fully loaded. It was less than uh, two-thirds loaded because she was actually going to River Rouge the, near the area to the Zug Island. And in order to get into that slip, she couldn't carry all of her cargo because she would hit bottom in the Detroit River. So not fully loaded, not going to Cleveland, 
actually going into the Detroit area with a, a load of iron ore that would eventually become automobiles. And they take off into a beautiful day. And as they do, McSorley in the pilot house actually sees that a big storm is coming up. He's got a, a radio that he can get reports through, and he's a weather ship. So he takes his observations and adds them to the weather reports to help forecasters try to develop where the storm's going to go. And it's quickly ascertained that, that he's going to get a storm that's going to come right through from Oklahoma all the way up to Marquette. And so he starts to calculate how long that would take and, and uses the forecast that he's getting, given as well and has to determine what he's going to do. But McSorley was a well-seasoned captain, and the coming storm likely didn't phase him too much, despite some of the reservations he may have had on the ship. McSorley had been a, a, a skipper that had been on the Great Lakes for years and years and worked his way up to the Edmund Fitzgerald. He was very stern from the people that I talked to, um, very matter-of-fact guy. As we talked uh, to a, a third mate in my documentary called The Fitzgerald Investigations, he remembered going through uh, Lake Superior Storm with just 10-foot waves where the Fitzgerald would flex so crazily, unlike any ship he had been on. And he looked at McSorley and he said, uh, man, it, it, should it be bending like this? And McSorley said, um, sometimes it scares me. So literally, he knew that this ship was, was different than other ships. He knew that it, it would um, flex in these storms. But because as a part-time job, he did hull inspection, he was very well versed in the strength of these ships. And he unfortunately pushed the Fitzgerald way beyond its means. As I did the investigation documentary, I found the Coast Guard looked into it. They looked at 10 years at the Sioux Locks, the worst storms that ever happened up until 1975. And the one ship that kept pushing every storm and made it through the locks during those gales was the Edmund Fitzgerald. So he was a rough weather skipper. He pushed the heck out of the ship and it eventually broke because of it. So the Fitzgerald pushed forward and soon they would get company to ride out the storm with in the form of the Arthur M. Anderson, another Laker captained by Bernie Cooper. And Cooper also is a, you know, these guys are experienced meteorologists. They have to be, their lives depend on it. And they start to, to figure out when the storm will come and what they're going to do. As they pass Isle Royal, they've got a place that they can hide there from these northwest winds that are starting to build. They continue going, but they take the northern route. The northern route goes closer to Canada. Uh, jokingly, some of the sailors call that the scenic route because otherwise you might not ever see land. As you go around the Keweenaw would be the last spot as you make that long haul past Marquette and make your way to the Sioux Locks and uh, Whitefish Bay. But uh, as they're going up, they, they go all the way past Otterhead in a second spot that they could throw out their anchor because it's so close to the Canadian shore, the waves can't build there. So you're pretty safe. You could wait it out. But they didn't. They decided they were going to make it for Whitefish Bay. They thought that the storm would take an extra hour to get to them, and they were wrong. As they got past uh, Caribou, it was the worst the storm could be, and they were in the absolute worst place they should be on Lake Superior, where those winds now could build the entire length of the lake and crash into the ship, and crash into them in the stern and on their starboard side. So if they had any problems at all, they were going to get into real trouble there, and that's what happened to Fitzgerald. As the Fitz is going past Caribou, it realizes it has some kind of problem. They look down the deck and they could see that 
At least one of their vents was missing. These look like mushrooms that are on the deck and they're very large and they're used to equalize the pressure below decks. But of course, Fitz has two thirds of a cargo in there. Well, as he noticed that one of those is missing, he also uh, finds out from his uh, engineers that he's taking on water. So they're running their pumps to try to keep that water out. He also mentioned something really unique. He says, our fence rail is down. And that has been interpreted in a couple of different ways. The fence rail could be the guide rails that are on the side of the ship, that perhaps some piece of debris came on, smashed its vent off, and also damaged that part of the rail. So he's radioing back and forth to the Anderson that he's got these problems. And then all of a sudden mentions his radars are out. And he was worried because the uh, McSorley had noticed that out of Whitefish Bay, there were several saltwater ships and including a, a big freighter called the William Clay Ford um, and another one that were trying to get out of Whitefish Bay. And he worried he'd get into a collision situation in the blinding snow that was happening. So he asked the Anderson to keep an eye out for them because his radars were out. So he's going blindly into this storm. The uh, Anderson is now trying to close the distance because the Fitzgerald being a faster boat was a mile or several miles ahead of them. The last broadcast came from Morgan Clark, the first mate on board the Anderson, who asked the Fitzgerald, how are you making out with your problems? And the Fitzgerald McSorley answered back, we are holding our own. And uh, unfortunately, in a blinding snow squall, the uh, Fitzgerald disappears. It disappears from radar because the, uh, the, the blinding snow also blinded the radar out. When it finally clears, Anderson can't see the Fitzgerald. And now their job is trying to notify the Coast Guard that a 729-foot freighter is missing. Uh, the last time that you uh, talked to him, at what time that was, really? I asked him how he was making out with his problem. Uh, he said he lost those vents and he had a lift and he said he was holding his own. Uh, the last time I talked with him, he said he was holding his own and uh, that's the last, the last time I uh, lost contact after that. Nobody wanted to believe that the Fitzgerald was gone, especially the Coast Guard. As, and we're very lucky that um, immediately the Coast Guard started recording all of these conversations. So we actually have the conversations as the, the Cooper is trying to tell the Coast Guard that they have um, missed the Fitzgerald. So here the Anderson is now making the safety of Whitefish Bay after uh, now 29 guys have been lost. A massive steel modern freighter has been lost to the storm and they call the Coast Guard who tells them we don't have a ship that can go out there. So the Coast Guard has to convince the captain of the Anderson that just witnessed this freighter sinking to turn around, come out of the safety of Whitefish Bay and go back into that killer storm. And he definitely did not want to do that. Right from the, the radio broadcast, we hear Cooper say, you know, there's gonna be two of us on the bottom. You know, he really believed going back out there was, was gonna be, you know, a, a bad mistake, but he knew he was the only choice. So they went back out there. You know, at that time it was 60 mile an hour winds. He, it was gonna take him two hours to go 17 miles with those intense winds that blowing right against them. And I don't think they believed that anybody would survive it. You know, with big 30 foot waves and water temperatures that were just above freezing, there really wasn't much chance. And unfortunately, it was a futile attempt. But I think that that was the spirit of the lakes. You do what you can. Uh, first, save, make, sure, make sure your crew is gonna survive it. And then, you know, if you can safely do it, you go out there and make the rescue. And, and he did to the truest tradition of sailors. 
you know, try to find those guys. But unfortunately, you know, as we know, nobody survived and no bodies were found. Then came the task of actually finding the final resting place of the Fitzgerald on the bottom of Lake Superior. It didn't take them very long, so they used this robot called the Curve 3 to um, not only find it, but to secure it. The Curve 3 came out and they flew that down to 550 feet. And as they saw the bow, they noticed it was upright, but as they went around the, the, uh, the stern section, which was broken uh, over 100 feet away, they noticed that the lettering was upside down and the Coast Guard investigators immediately thought the ROV or the robot was inverted. And they, the, the uh, pilot said, no, it's not. This is, this is the back section, 200 feet of the Edmund Fitzgerald that was upside down. So the horrible act of it tearing apart somewhere in the, the water column actually flipped the entire stern upside down and the bow section is resting proudly upright on the bottom where you can actually see every deck in the pilot house as well. And there the Fitzgerald sat, a gravesite for her 29 crew, none of which were ever recovered. Immediately there were questions on why this modern lake freighter sank, and these questions still brew today. Did she hit bottom? Did she get hit by a rogue wave? Or did her hatch covers cave in? Answers were hard to find as the wreck site was soon protected by the Canadian government at the request of the families of the victims. So very few people have actually seen the wreck. But in 1994, Rick did. In 94, we took the uh, submersible Delta, which had been famous for diving the Lusitania. And uh, we went down in this two-man yellow submarine, and uh, I was the third dive on the uh, Delta Expedition. When you dive a shipwreck, you get down to it, and if you're free diving it or you're doing it on scuba um, equipment where you don't have a submarine around you, you can actually go up to it and touch it. You know, the cold steel and the immense size of these vessels is what really becomes um, apparent to you. The Fitzgerald was surreal in the fact that I was down 500 feet. The light stopped at about 250, so it's pitch black beyond you know, whatever you have on board your submarine, which we had lots of lights. So it becomes very surreal. As you look through the porthole, you can see glimpses of the ship, but not the whole ship at the same time. So as we went past the name, the letters are, you know, over a foot and a half tall. I'm trying to remember exactly how big they were, but that's what first captured my, my, my mind was it said Edmund Fitzgerald, and it was horribly torn up on the port side. So the collision with the bottom had just ripped apart the spar deck from the side of the ship. And the name had been scratched up and beat up so badly that it, it, it took my breath away. And as we went around the bow and to see the bow was actually bent almost 90 degrees, the, the force of the storm was just incredible. And then the tiny details, as you'd see a, a blanket hanging out of the pilot house, or you go up to the top and you'd see the, the radars that were, you know, Panasonic on top. The, the, it's a plastic, like just a little sliver of plastic ripped off and the wires were just there. So you, you start to piece together the story from that. Each one of those pieces not only awed me, but you know, you, you were just so excited to see this great shipwreck. And then when I came up, we actually had uh, power left in the submarine. And so it was decided that the owner of the tugboat, who we were renting from, would, uh, would actually get to take his son down there for a, a look. 
and we were eating lunch and we got a, a report from the submarine through the sonophone, the sound waves from the, it's like a radio that goes through water. And uh, we found out that they found a missing crewman. So we went from this incredible high of me just visiting the most famous shipwreck on the Great Lakes, the largest shipwreck on the Great Lakes at 550 feet down to a horrible low of, oh my God, there are 29 people that were lost there. You lose that connection, I think, because you're in the sub and you're safe. When you're diving, it's really apparent that that these shipwrecks are you know, this is a, a final grave because you have this water around you and you've got to be so careful when you're scuba diving to do that. I never lost that connection, but I think I did on the Fitzgerald because I felt so protected in the submarine, but that immediately was erased when they found a first missing crewman, a body lying off of the bow of the shipwreck wearing a life jacket. There's nothing more sobering than that. And instantly we were transported back to this is a grave site The day after the wreck, the Mariner's Church in Detroit rang its bell 29 times for each of the crewmen lost. And this ceremony continues in Michigan today with the ship's actual bell, raised in 1995 and kept at Whitefish Point. But for the families of those lost on November 10, 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald is more than just a song. It's a tragedy that will always be remembered. For Our American Stories, I'm Monty Montgomery. And great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery. A terrific job producing that piece. And by the way, Monty is a Hillsdale grad and doing fine work here. And a real special thanks to Rick Mixter, who, as you can tell, doing what he does is more than a vocation. It's his life. And coming across the Fitzgerald at the bottom of Lake Superior, my goodness, what a, what a feeling that must have been. And understanding deeply that indeed it was a grave site as crew members spotted actual bodies. And then as he put together this documentary, seeing for himself that this shipwreck had real life consequences and involved real life human beings. A big thank you to Monty and Rick for bringing us that story. And by the way, folks, what we do here is free to the public, but it's not free to make. Any kind of support you can give us, a donation, a contribution, would be appreciated. Send your tax-deductible donations to OurAmericanStories.com. We're a nonprofit. We're not here to make money. We're here to just do what we do, which is tell beautiful stories about a good and beautiful country. And now we bring you the last story of today's podcast, the story of Eileen Hall. We got together with Eileen and her daughter, Sherry, who were both from Canton, Ohio. Here's Eileen. I'm from Canton, Ohio. I was born in 10, 11, 23, and my mother and dad had a restaurant in downtown Canton, and we had a hotel up above the restaurant, and that's where I was raised. We lived right across the street from McKinley High School, so all I had to do was walk to, for high school was walk across the street and go to school. After my mother made it to my 
high school graduation and shortly after that she passed on and my dad remarried and I felt very uncomfortable at home with a different mother really. And you were working at? Kempkin Roller Bearing Company so it's a long time that's 75 years ago you know so I'm trying to remember a lot of it I'll never forget but uh, and there I met a girl and we became friends and we worked in the stationary supply office and uh, she had a boyfriend from Galleon, Ohio and every time he came up to see her he brought his brother so she said do you think you'd mind dating his brother if he brings him up and I said oh no well that was it because we just melded together and it's just worked out so but he was being drafted like all the that he was going to be sent to Oklahoma. So uh, after my dad remarried, I just didn't feel comfortable at home. So I said, I think I'll, I always wanted to go to California. So I said, I think I'll go to California because I've always wanted to go there. So I boarded a train and it stopped in Oklahoma. And I thought, well, I'll just see, you know, him while I'm here. So that's as far as I got. <laughs> we got married. <laughs> After I was there a few days, we had to go through blood tests and it was really, you know, so and we were married in a Parsons office. And then it wasn't long after that, that he was sent overseas. So I thought, well, since I'm married to him, I'll go back home and see what I can do. You know, so I went back home and I decided to enlist in the service. So I went in downtown Canton where they had their recruiting office and told them I would like to join the Army. Well, the Navy I really wanted, but you couldn't get in that one until later. So um, I decided I'd get in the Army if I could. So even though I was married, I had to get my dad's consent. Because of my age, I couldn't do it unless I had my parents' consent. So I went to where he worked and told him, and he said, well, if I don't do this, you'll do something else crazy. So he signed. He was a World War I veteran. So he signed, and I took it back. And after that, I uh, got into uh, basic training in Daytona Beach, Florida. From there, I was, uh, I volunteered. They said as we were being interviewed, the girls that had already volunteered said, you'll be sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, but I volunteered for everything, so I always got the pick of things that I wanted to do. So I thought that was a good idea. From there, I was sent to Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia for driver training. And uh, I led a convoy through Georgia as one of our tryouts, you know, to see how we did. And so, uh, and then we had to, uh, go in gas chambers and take off the gas mask and stay for a few minutes and then go out and catch your breath again. So, And then uh, we had to lay down and they fired shots over us, you know, to see how we'd react. And then we had uh, to go through other training, abandoning ship, we had to go, you know, to a top of the ship that would be and go down the sides and a couple of the girls were just terrified of doing it, so I helped along with them. 
And then after that was all done, I was sent to Fort Lewis, Washington. And I was only there for a little while. The, the fellows in the barracks weren't used to having women there. And boy, every time we'd walk out everywhere, shoo, there were guys walking with us. So, but anyway, I volunteered. They asked for volunteers to go overseas. So um, I volunteered, but there were too many. So I wasn't going to get to go. But at the last minute, one gal dropped out. And so I took her place. And then it wasn't long after that that we were sent to Fort Dix, or New Jersey, and boarded the Queen Elizabeth and headed for France. So it, on a ship that in peacetime would accommodate two people, there were 24 whacks in one room. And, and then we went on and we landed at Glasgow, Scotland, in the Isle of Clyde. And there we were met with the Red Cross and the Salvation Army and they gave us food and until they decided where we were going to go from there. And some of us boarded a train and headed for Sutton Coalfield, England. That's where I was going to be stationed for a while. So um, that's where I had to drive a Jeep. I, I went through the motor corps, so I was allowed to drive a Jeep and up to a two and a half ton truck. So I drove the, uh, everybody in Sutton Coalfield in England had to list a, if they had a room available for GIs because they didn't want the women staying in rooms. They wanted the men to be there. So that's what I did for a while and got them all done. And, and then uh, I was sent, I, I drove a major there that uh, four, four of us were drivers and I, we all drove an officer. So I drove a major, so we were on call 24 hours a day for whatever reason they wanted us. So, but, uh, well, I had to drive in the fog so bad that I had to put my foot up, they drive on the left side on the curb so I would know where I was going. And because of that, my left leg is, is not as big as my right one. It took that much, it froze, you know, and I had to go back to the barracks and they put me behind a bakery and so I could thaw out to my leg was so frozen from driving. So uh, we had gone through many air raids at night and, and one of the gals said, if I'm gonna get killed, I'm going to do it right here. And so the rest of us decided we'd stay together. So that was it, <laughs> because there were nightly air raids, you know, so. After I left England, I went to France and was with the post office there as a driver. So every morning I'd drive into Paris and you could, there were, the streets were empty except for people going through garbage cans trying to get something to eat, people and dogs. And that's something I'll never forget. And as I drove to the post office that I was be at, just as I drove in, something cracked on the uh, steering wheel, and I couldn't steer it. But I was already there, so I was. I felt that was a blessing because if I'd done that out in the, you know, out on the streets, it would have been something else. I have faith, and I. I just felt I'd be protected whatever I did. 
because I, if I volunteered for something, I felt that that's what I should do. So I just had a different life than some of the other whacks. But <laughs> the Battle of the Bulge was going on then, and they were bringing the wounded into the uh, hospital in Paris. And uh, our commanding officer was called from from the hospital and asked to send some wax down to help. The wounded were coming in so fast. So um, our our commanding officer called me and said, you know, I'm gonna take some wax to the hospital. So I got a ton and a half truck and loaded it with wax and drove into the hospital in front of the hospital and walked in and here the GIs are all laying on the floor and you could just walk sideways. And so they, we would, kneel down and talk to them and take, you know, we all went and talked to each one and asked what, where they were from and just got them calmed down before. And then they finally found room for them all. So, but when I had time off, I was allowed to take the Jeep and I became acquainted with two fellows from Iowa. And one was, uh, had his uh, left leg amputated below his knees, so he was gonna be sent home. And he said he hated to see, go home without seeing Paris. And I said, well, I'll see what I can do. So I went to my commanding officer, told her the story, and she says, you take a Jeep and show him wherever you want to go. So over there were two whacks in the back and me driving and him sit beside me and I took him all over Paris. So he was, you know, excited about that. And uh, we kept in touch for years after I got home, so. I got a letter from my husband saying he was going to be sent to the CBI, that's the China Burma. And I thought, and I started crying. And the officer was below me, and she came up and wanted to know why I was crying. And I said, Well, my husband's going to be sent to the CB area. And I said, I, I'd probably never see him again. And she said, I'll see what I can do. So she got me orders attached to Mark Clark's. But he, he never knew I was part of his service. So, but that got me to early airport and asked, you know, if anybody was going to Paris. And there, there was a plane just out there that was going to be going to Italy. And I told my story to the guy at the desk. And so he said, that plane right there, you can get on. So they put down the Bombay doors and I walked out and and they, one on one side and one on the other, lifted me up and put it in where the gun turret is. And that's how I rode from there to, to Italy. And I got off of the plane and I was standing on the road and I didn't realize right in front of me was the Tower of Pisa because I didn't realize it was that big, you know. And so I walked out and I started hitchhiking. And along came a British, guy in a truck with three uh, soldiers in the back and one was they were attending to one and I said what happened she said he got hurt but not by fire I don't know exactly how he got hurt and they're going into Rome so they stopped for water and the driver of the truck had to come back and stand in front of me so I could lean to the back because the people just came from everywhere and they wanted to touch me. And you know, and I, I didn't know what to do. So they looked out for me. And then we left and went on to Rome 
to the Red Cross there and they put me up for the night. The next morning was a Sunday, so it was church. So I went down and went to church and after a little while before church started, a fellow sat down beside me and he looked at my patch. He says, you're not from around here, are you? And I said, no, I, and I told him my story. He said, I'll see what I can do. So the next day, he had gotten permission from his officer and he was able to take me from Rome to Milano. And uh, on the way, it started to rain and the fellow didn't know how to do the, the top to the Jeep, so I showed him how to do that. And he uh, took me up and my husband was waiting for me, waiting there, so. We had our honeymoon on Lake Como and I had our own villa attached to a regular one, which is owned now by George Clooney. And I'm sure George Clooney doesn't know it, but I'm gonna write a letter to him sometime if he ever gets it. The Villa Diaz Esti. Yeah, so, yeah, that was the Fifth Army Rest Camp. So we left from Laharve on the E.B. Alexander, headed for the United States. As we pulled into New York Harbor, all the lights came on and they took us off the boat and fed us the best Thanksgiving dinner we ever had. So, and from there, we had to go to Fort Dix to get released from the Army. And then I boarded a train for Canton, Ohio. And when I got to Canton, there they were, my husband and my, my dad, and just welcomed me home. He got home seven days before I did. But other than that, why, I think my experience was something that not too many people have the opportunity to experience. So that's my love story. <laughs> and I love to tell it. <laughs> so, and thanks for the opportunity to tell it. So that's it. And that's it. And thanks for the opportunity to let us tell it. Eileen, and what a beautiful story about so many things, particularly just a sheer sense of adventure and independence. I think about the coddling of 17, 18, and 19-year-olds today, and this lady and her husband off to Europe to fight Nazis, searching for each other, learning how to drive trucks and tanks, supply lines to defeat one of the world's worst enemies in history without reservation, and with a sense of joy afterwards. My goodness, she looks back at this as perhaps the most important and best time of her life. Imagine meeting up with a husband in Lake Como and having your wedding celebration there, your honeymoon there, and then coming back to New York Harbor and having, as she put it, the best Thanksgiving meal ever. Thanks to Eileen and Sherry for that beautiful story. On the next episode of the Our American Stories podcast, the story of the Gettysburg Address and what it can teach us today. We'll also tell the story of Gwen Boyd Willis, a young lady who committed a minor felony in 2005, struggled to find a job after prison, and was given a helping hand by an unexpected source. And last, we'll tell the story of the Toledo War, when Michigan and Ohio went to war over a small strip of land and began the very start of the classic Michigan-Ohio rivalry. Thanks again for joining us for this episode. I'm Lee Habib, and this 
is the Our American Stories podcast.